of the things I got from my, my boxing coaching mentor, Gordon Calkins, who's the Marine, was uh, that the loving thing to do a lot of times is to tell people shit they don't want to hear, Matt. You know? Welcome to Stoa Conversations. In this podcast, Caleb Ontiveros and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and the other will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Gordon Marino. Gordon is a professor of philosophy at St. Olaf's College and a specialist in existentialism. Existentialism is a different way of approaching philosophy as a way of life. In this conversation, we speak about existentialism and in particular the work of Kierkegaard. We discuss the idea of authenticity and humans' capacity for self-deception. We also talk about the separation between what we know we should do and our own actions and how to bridge that gap. Towards the end of the podcast, we discuss sport. In particular, Gordon's experience as a boxing coach and how his athletic journey relates to existentialism. This podcast should be of value to anyone who wants to learn more about approaches to philosophy as a way of life that differ from Stoicism. Here is Gordon Marino. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Stoa. I'm joined today by Gordon Marino, professor of philosophy at St. Olaf's College and specialist in existentialism. Hi, Gordon. Thanks for coming on. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I think it's pretty exciting to get to talk to a specialist in existentialism. And I think there's, there's a lot of value to add to people who are interested in stoicism, interested in philosophy as a way of life. So we'll just start off with a really simple question. You know, what is existentialism? Existentialism is really unified by a bunch of different themes. So everyone has a different roster of who's on the existentialism. If you look at anthologies, including my own, there are very different kinds of rosters. So um, I always think of it in terms of a bunch of themes that unite them. For example, uh, limits of rationality, individual choice, freedom, addressing emotions like I'm a specialist in Kierkegaard, addressing them, and he directly addresses emotions like and moods like anxiety and depression and that sort of thing. Um, what's a first person perspective, which I think is really, you get it, you certainly get in Kierkegaard that it's uh, thinking about life from first person perspective. So, one of his books, he, one of the pseudonymous, he wrote in pseudonyms, and one of the pseudonymously written books, one of his classics, is the Concluding Unscientific Postscript. And in that book, he lists all the facts about death, right? Of the objective facts are about a page and a half. You know, if you take certain sulfur or whatever it is, if there's sulfur gas, he'll die, the hero dies in the fifth act, on and on and on. And then he goes, but none of this tells me what death means to me, what my own death means, right? And so he draws this distinction between kind of an objective knowledge and this personal, uh, what things personally mean to him. And I think that's uh, true of a lot of uh, some other existential thinkers. So this, uh, and that's how the question of the, uh, the meaning of life comes up, right? The question of what's the meaning? Facts as opposed to meaning, right? Like those are some of the main themes of existentialism. Yeah, great. Could you speak a little bit more about the first-person perspective and I guess maybe some other examples and how that differs from, I guess, facts and what, what the difference is there? Yeah, so here, Kierkegaard, in this context, Kierkegaard asks, again, he says, I know all these facts about death, right? That all men are mortal, I'm a man, therefore I'm going to die, blah, 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 right? Objective facts. But that doesn't tell me what death means to me, right? So he raises this question about the, the meaning of what Certain ideas mean what they mean to you. So one of his a point of great emphasis in Kierkegaard is, is, is uh, maybe the greatest is his emphasis on inwardness, on appropriation. He says that 
he feels that people have appropriated things in a very limited way and they don't have this passionate relationship to their ideas. So, I mean, look at our own age, right? You think you're a fighter for social justice if you have a like on Facebook or something, right? Or on Twitter, right? So he's very much concerned with our internal relationship or passionate relationship to our beliefs. So, um, yeah, you can ask yourself sometimes, oh, okay, I'm for all, all for justice. And you might say to yourself, well, really, what have I sacrificed for this cause? I really, or is it just people call through and I nonsense chatter? So your book, The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age, does this relate to this idea of authenticity, this connection between your identity or what, you know, you say you believe in justice, but you're not really sacrificing anything? Yeah, well, I, well in that book, I tried to begin every chapter with a personal story because I think if you can't relate your abstractions to life, to examples, and then there's something missing. And that's also something I find in both, uh, certainly in Kierkegaard is whenever he gives an abstract idea, there's idea, and always he'll come up with a, um, a fairy tale or something to illuminate it. And at least in my background in philosophy, there's so little emphasis on style and uh, it's all on kind of a you know, sort of jargon laden and heavy and incomprehensible many times, as you might know. And so I, I think it's really important um, to be able to relate your abstractions to something concrete. And that was one of the things I tried to do in my book. My son who's an editor said, some of these examples are too concrete, Dad. Cut them out. <laughs> we'll go into that part. Yeah. I don't think you want to say that. Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, in, in the book, you do relate it to these concrete examples. And you talk about existentialism affecting your own life. You talk about it, you know, pulling you back from the rope and cross beam. And I was wondering if, if you have some examples or you wanted to pick one from your own experience of how existentialism has impacted your life. Well, certainly Kierkegaard did immensely. As I read in the book, I was a, a basket case after a breakup in an early marriage. I mean, literally, after about two years, people thought I was a goner. And I um, picked up a book, on, one of Kierkegaard's books in a uh, coffee shop when I was waiting for a therapy appointment. and. Uh, a couple of things he helped with immediately were, as I started to study him, was uh, the fact that suffering is not a stench. You know, like if you have anxiety or depression, it's not a stench. It's something you can do with dignity and actively, right? And it's something to go through actively. So he gave some dignity to the whole, that whole experience of, uh, I mean, a, a real mental breakdown. I was a bit hospitalized and quite a bit of trouble. And, uh, it also, he helped me become aware of the fact that if you aspire to be a good, loving human being, you got to be able to be able, you have to be, it's easy to do that when you're, you know, you're getting, you know, just been accepted to med school or whatever. You just had your novel published and you got some, you know, your, everything's all the, all the lights are gray. Well, try doing it when um, a hammer comes down in life, which it does and it, it will. And that's when you really see, uh, he talks about it as a, a crisis to where you really see what the underlying structure's like. So, he really helped me understand that it was important to um, be able to read through the likes of anxiety and depression. Now, for him, they also have, you know, we live in a, not to carry on too long, like, but uh, we live in a very medicalizing society, obviously. I mean, one book out uh, that I thought is good is uh, uh, The Disappearance of Sadness, where all sadness is, is classified as depression. So um, beyond um, just encouraging us to be able to deal with these emotions, Kierkegaard also claims they have a certain cognitive significance, right? So unlike other philosophers, he's saying that there's a cognitive content 
these feelings, and they're very important. So it's in anxiety for Kierkegaard and all the epigones that rip them off that we come to really understand that we're free, right? And so what he says, it's, it's, he recognizes how dangerous anxiety can be if handled wrongly, but he also says it's a blessing because it's a, how we appropriate our own freedom. Is that clear? Is that, got that idea? So one thing you hit on is this cognitive content to negative emotions. And this was a thing you mentioned in the book as well, which is that you can use negative emotions as conveyors of self-understanding was the quote, which I thought was really, really nice. And that's the thing that I talk about in Stoicism as well a lot, which is this idea that I don't know if it's the exact same, but in Stoicism, it's this view that your, you know, your negative emotions are cognitive. They tell you something about the way you relate to the world and you don't want to ignore them. You want to engage with them, listen to them. If you're feeling anxious, that's telling you something about what you value, something about your own way of understanding the world. I think I see a connection there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There is this agreement on, on that, on the importance of dealing with emotions and being aware of what you feel. A lot of philosophers talk about self-knowledge and heck, because then you can have self-knowledge without knowing what you feel. As I understand the Stoics, they, they might have some, tell you something about where your heart is, but um, they're still regarded as the enemy to some extent. Whereas for Kierkegaard, they're revelatory in a different way. They're positive things. They're a blessing. But Kierkegaard... You know, he says, to learn to be anxious the right way is the greatest lesson in life. So the, I, I think there's more emphasis on Kierkegaard on the positive and intrinsic nature of it, right? Yeah, I'm super curious about that. So what about a negative emotion would be revelatory or positive? Okay, so an anxiety, uh, again, you, you experience choice and, and freedom. You experience that you're a spirit, you know, that you can do either A, B, or C, right? So there's that, that there. That's positive, right? He says, animals and angels don't have anxiety. I have think he was wrong about animals, but no about angels. Or depression, the sense of uh, connection with other people, it can certainly make you more empathic, but it also uh, is a way of um, appropriating your vulnerability in life, which is not something Stokes like. They don't talk about, which is a God term today. I mean, I, I, I hate to carry on about it too much. I, I hear too much about the, uh, you know, the big room, the new virtues, being, making yourself vulnerable. but. Depression can tell you something about that, right? So uh, those are some positive lessons that can come out of that. So there's some facts about human existence which carry pain, but also a certain degree of beauty. And if you close yourself off to feeling anxiety at choices or potential, you're closing yourself off to like experiencing your own freedom, something like this? Something like that, except I, I, I hate to uh, be blasphemous, but for Kierkegaard, this is very much connected with, uh, with, with faith for him, you know? And that was another, well, another thing he certainly helped with. I mean, I thought belief in Jesus or whatever was like Santa Claus stuff until I encountered him and he helped. Because he acknowledged how uh, faith is this collision with reason, the understanding, radical collision, that's choice. Uh, he helped me. Uh, it's almost like he identified the elephant in the room. All right, so for him... Uh, Anxiety and, 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 and depression would have a spiritual significance. For, for example, I mean, so if we, you know, probably need to secularize this today to dulcerate it now to sweeten it up, but uh, if you're offended by the idea of God, uh, Kierkegaard would say, well, look, the, the thing that you should be anxious about most in life is what kind of human being you are. You know, not, not everything else in life is subject to chance. And I, well, my students, I always, try to get them to think about, you know, what kind of person do you want to be? 
what's your goal as a person? Because, of course, naturally, at that age, they're all thinking about what am I going to do? What's my career going to be? Well, you can think about that, but also, so for Kierkegaard, it's the fear of the right thing. Fear of being a jerk, I, that's how I put it a lot, more than losing a little bit of your happiness quotient. Do the existentialists have an answer to that question of how, how do you want to live? Or is it more a push for you to think critically about it for yourself? Again, it, it depends on who you're thinking of here, right? As I mentioned in the book, you know, there's kind of two models of what it is to be a self. One, you're born with a certain self that you try to realize for Kierkegaard. That would be um, being a faithful, loving person, good person, right? And no matter how much you achieve, if you become the big shot, you're a billionaire by 30 because you invented some app. That's not it, man. He thinks... Even one of the cool things is his claim is that uh, this great success can, that you know, thank God for all that stuff. He says some of those things lead to a certain forgetfulness about what our real task in life is, and that's to be good human beings, right? Now, the other ones, like you take Nature, Sartre, they, and and you might know more about this, but it seems to me they're kind of in the Rousseauian line of thinking of the self as this painting. You make your actions serve this ensemble of actions. So it's more of a creation. So how do you choose between those views of the self? One that you're born with and one of the self of self-creation? Well, what do you think Kierkegaard would say? Either or, leave the faith time. Because like, you're not going to like wait for philosophy to sell the argument. You know what I mean? Like life's going, time, time doesn't stop. You talked about Kierkegaard and the role of faith, which when I think of existentialism, I think of, you know, this, this sense of like meaning post God, right? Like this, this view of, of constructing yourself, you know, if there is no inherent meaning from a God. So I want to dig into that faith question with Kierkegaard, but maybe if we can back up a bit and if you provide some, who was Kierkegaard, some kind of uh, biographical information. We could have started you with that. Yeah, we should have. <laughs> Make more sense. I'm quite more easy, brother. Okay. Yeah. So Kierkegaard's in that. I was born 1813, lived until 18- 55, and he, he's born in Copenhagen, right? And wrote in Danish, uh, and he's, uh, most other people of his income, of his intellect would have written in German or something. And um, he was born to a very wealthy family. His father was, was a shepherd in Jutland, but I uh, came in, into Copenhagen at 12 and amassed a fortune at a time when the Danish economy was falling apart. So very, uh, very weird stuff like that. Rarely, if ever, does he identify, identify himself with philosophy, even though he's been appropriated by philosophy. Right? He was not. He was very critical of academic philosophy, and um, more about um, as Lewis Mackey put it, a, a kind of poet, and more of a theological sort. What were kind of his major works, and I suppose this idea of, of faith. Where does that kind of come to a head in, in, in his work? The uh, issue of faith is, is throughout all his works. As I mentioned earlier, in his classics like Fair and Trembling, Sick of Son of Death, the Philosophical Fragments were all written in, in pseudonyms, okay? But at the same time, he would publish a book under a pseudonym, which I take to be, uh, and each pseudonym, I think there's a the Kierkegaard industry. There's huge debates about the name of these pseudonyms, right? I think each pseudonym embodies a different life perspective, right? So, but at the same time, he would publish a book under a pseudonym, he would also publish another what he called edifying literature under his own name. Usually they were a day apart. 
like Kant in some way, he thought that an, our knowledge of uh, ethics of right and wrong were universally distributed, right? You, didn't need, you don't need a, an ethics expert to tell you what to do. I had anything. And my sense is that he thought that if, if the elite had a, an, an edge there too, had an advantage there, it would be an unfair world. So he thought that because a knowledge of ethics and to some extent, yeah. uh, certain aspects of Christianity were universally distributed, there was no no longer an object to be communicated, right? What needed to be communicated was to help bring the, right? So there's no object of knowledge. You and I both know, have this knowledge of, eth of right from wrong. I don't need to tell you about it. You don't need more information, right? So he said that transforms the whole project of communication so that what you're doing is trying to bring a person into a more authentic, although I never use the word, relationship with their beliefs. So in that context, he comes up with what, what I think is his mo one of his most interesting contributions of this doctrine of indirect communication. He says, look, you go back and ask, there's two things I can blather on and tell. Boxing and kick car. So <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll get to boxing at the end. Oh, well, well, I'm sorry to carry on here, but... Um, no, it's great. Anyhow, so he said, look, philosophers don't think about, um, I haven't thought about the issue of communication since Plato in the seventh letter, right? With, about whether or not to write. You know what I mean? I mean, so they never, all they do is they hand you this, these huge treatises and here you go. And even today, there's not emphasis on, on style. Sometimes I read some of these guys, it's like, what are you, like some grandiose narcissist? They just don't care whether or not people understand it? Irritates me, and Kierkegaard started to give some serious thought to how to communicate. Okay, so I love this. This is really interesting. So the, the idea is that you know, ethical intuition is quite strong. We all generally have a, have a good picture of what it is to be a good person and to be a bad person. So the question is not teach us something. The question is how do we motivate ourselves. So it's this question of motivation, this reconciling belief and behavior. One way. An answer to that or a solution to that problem, that separation between belief and behavior is indirect communication, which is this uh, stories, parables, or kind of other forms of ways of motivating people. Irony, great use of irony. And the idea is you want to know who you're talking to, right? So you, you know, go up to some, uh, I don't know, some uh, evangelical atheist and start giving them arguments for the existence of God, right? So the idea is that... Uh, Take the coordinates of who, you know, who, who you're speaking to. Be aware of their subjectivity. But yeah, the test is some of a motivation. But as I get into in the book, I think great, Kierkegaard's greatest insight about ethics was uh, our capacity for self-deception. I bring up some examples in my book. Of, we talk ourselves out of inconvenient truths. So for example, if you're the guy during the Vietnam War, I think it was 68, the guy who, you, this man, Hugh Thompson, was a helicopter pilot, discovered the My Lai Master going on, he and his, his crew, they forget the other, the other guys, and he's holy. So he lands, he lands the helicopter and uh, tries to talk to the man in charge, and they'd already killed like three civilians. And uh, Rusty Callie was in charge, and uh, Callie wouldn't stop it. And so Thompson took the gun, machine guns and the um, helicopter and pointed them at the American troops, say, keep this up, I'll kill you. Now, that took a lot of courage. I mean, because, I mean obviously, like, you know, he was called a traitor. But that wasn't the hard part. For, well, the hard part really was he goes to, uh, to report this event, right, up the chain of command. 
they start sending them on suicide missions. First, I think the first two commanders were like, didn't do anything, right? Okay, so all this time he's, he's being called a traitor. They're trying to kill him, basically. And he could say, oh, look, I've done my duty. You know, that's enough, right? I can, right? There, so there's all these ways he could have talked to himself and saying, it's not my problem anymore, right? But no, he went right through. And that brought it to the attention of this massacre, to the attention of the American people. And it changed the view of the Vietnam War. And he suffered terribly for it. So Kierkegaard thinks what we try to do, we pro procrastinate. So I have a tough decision to make. And I know the decision is going to lead to some pain. So before I jump into the decision, I go, hey, maybe I better sleep on this, you know, make sure I'm doing the only thing. And we sleep on it all right and sleep ourselves out of the issue. So that's, I, I think, one of his greatest contributions is his analysis of self-deception, which is in the second part of uh, Sickness on the Death. You'll see some one of the best descriptions. Yeah, that's brilliant. So there's a bunch of different ways we have this disconnect. Just trying to frame it for myself. So this disconnect between belief and behavior. And one of these ways is through self-deception. Another is through, you know, procrastination. And what was, what would Kierkegaard, does Kierkegaard have a set of recommendations about how we overcome self-deception? Or what does he have to say on that? Oh, well, one of the things that we should emphasize here is uh, the self-deception takes the form of you actually finally convince yourself that doing the easy thing is the right thing. So it's not even a matter he says hypocrites are, are rare today. So it's not like I'm being a hypocrite. You actually, yeah, this, so this volitional self-ignorance, right? You, you create, you actually create, you convince yourself that you're doing the right thing. One of the, the um, secular virtues um, that he emphasized a lot is, is the effort to be honest with yourself. But he doesn't have any, like, oh, here's the seven steps. To, we like these, we like these formulas today, right? The, Six steps to forgiveness and 17 steps to out of self-deception. So this capacity for self-honesty to tolerate is important, I think, for him. So that, fair enough that there's no kind of six-step method, but I guess in your own experience, for people that are struggling, is the idea that the solution will be individual and you just need to confront these and like put in the hard work or what's kind of the, um, maybe this is my own succumbing to this problem of wanting a six steps, but I feel like we're like, okay, we've identified this problem, but like, what, are, what do we do now? I don't know if you have any personal thoughts. Okay. So this is a, a maybe a trivial story, but I got the very uh, sad news that my brother has a, what looks to be a, a very bad cancer. My, my older brother was like a father to me, just an incredible guy. A priest I know was, so I say the priest I've ever met, was killed in a bike accident. And there was a funeral last night. And uh, part of me is going, well, you know, you're going through this really hard time. Give yourself a break. You don't need to go to this, you know, that kind of chatter like that. I mean, it was, I was in a very bad place. And then the partner said, man, come on, wake up, baby. You can make it through an hour. You can make it through an hour service. You know, I was a boxing trainer. He's a, he, um, was really helpful with the Mexican immigrant community. And I have a lot of, my boxers are Mexicans. And he's just, and he was an unbelievable, unbelievable guy. So there I was, I was ready to talk myself out of it, cut myself a break. In this case, I said, come on, you know. So it's not six steps, but there, there was a self-reflection and you can do this, it's not going to kill you. And something like that. So I, that, that self-reflection and recognize it. Am I taking just the easy way out or am I 
underestimating my ability to. It, it's funny, um, but you know, one of the Kierkegaard's um, he thought one of the biggest problems with human existence is our kind of universal impulse to compare ourselves to other people, like you know, yeah. academics who's publishing this books and that kind of thing. Or and he thought we carried it into the graveyard, right? To big shot gets the big monument. And I think I mentioned in the book, I've had students get into grad school and they want and they want to know how many people got rejected, right? And I like to tell them nobody got rejected. <laughs> right? Because the more the more rejected, the more valuable cool I am, right? <laughs> well, but sometimes like uh, it happens me too, you know, when I'm in a situ a situation like last night, you now to look around the world and uh Yemen and places like that. And uh, yeah, I think I could handle uh <laughs> it makes me stop whining. You know what I mean? That, that, so in that sense, I think he's wrong that sometimes a comparison like that can be useful. Like, come on, this is—you're not exactly in a civil war in Syria, or you're, or, or some famine or something. So, well, I guess a, a comparison that provides perspective versus a comparison that's just strokes your ego or makes you feel better than other people. Or anxious, right? Yeah, or right? anxious is a good point too. I, I've, I've seen books like someone will say, "Oh, you should read this book." No, I wish I'd read. I, that's the book I wanted to write. I don't want to. You know, the jealousy, them, but yeah, the pandemic in our society. So I think Kierkegaard was wrong there. Comparisons can be used. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. I want to get to the boxing. We'll leave enough time for that because I'm I also very interested in martial arts and martial arts as a, as a form of self-improvement or at least applying philosophy. But just one thing back to the Kierkegaard. So I guess I just want to, I just want to go back to faith. So where does faith fit into this picture? Obviously Kierkegaard's complicated. There's, there's going to be many facets to his thought. We focused on this kind of discrepancy between belief and action, self-deception, convincing yourself that the right, the easy thing is the right thing. And so where, is, where does faith fit into this picture? Or is it a different, different part of the philosophy? I think it's all important. I think for, for him, again, he thinks, you know, we've been um, you know, given the gospel and told to believe uh, and we have this choice. We're not going to get there on a rational or empirical basis, right? That we have to make a, what's called the leap of faith, a phrase that he didn't exactly use. And I think for him, uh, and so it's, it always works like, I mean, everything is always there. And I, to the point where, I mean, I think one of the, sometimes people want to cancel him because he's not, he didn't write about political issues that were going on. But I, I think for him, it's just, um, faith is more than a uh, propositional belief. It's this attempt to uh, trust in God like you would a person. So I see faith for him as trust. So, I mean, a bunch of bad crap happens. Like, yeah, I feel like, oh man, give me this break about higher power and all this stuff, right? People disappoint us sometime, and um, and um, the idea is to tr just try to maintain this trust as opposed to the yeah, I believe X, Y, and Z. He recognized the feelings that go with faith come and go, right? That right that, that you're not always going to feel, but he thinks it's a it, it's a light motif in his work, and so it's, a, it's devoted his whole life to thinking about it. What it mean what it means to have faith. So he thought by clarifying what it means to have, okay. So he, he in terms of his background, uh, when you were born. A, Denmark in that time, you were born into the Lutheran Church. He objected. He said, "No, faith is something much, much harder." So, he wanted to make faith possible again by 
by showing what a, what a strenuous, what a, what a weird, primitive thing it is. Make it possible again by showing how impossibly hard it is. Is that going to make you happy? No. He thought there were more important things in life than happiness and self-fulfillment. Right? So faith would, you wouldn't say, well, how's faith going to make me happier? Might make you more at peace at some level, but he doesn't make any. He thought happiness and those things were much more governed by. And this is where, of course, he disagree with the Stokes here. He doesn't emphasize grace because there's his view that in order to be faithful or a good person, you need the grace of God, right? That's an old ancient view. He doesn't emphasize that because he thought the Danes had overused the idea of grace too much, right? At the Lutheran tradition. So, yeah, it doesn't figure into the picture of how am I going to get the most fulfillment or how am I going to be uh, happiest. In and of itself, is more important than anything for me. I mean, that was great. What I was thinking also was this idea, again, of authenticity. So you were saying, like, he wants to make faith possible by showing how hard actual faith is. So I assume perhaps in the context, a bunch of people had deluded themselves or had a kind of self-deception about faith, but weren't looking, you know, weren't confronting the actual difficulty of the act or something like this. Is that right at all? One book that many people read is Fear and Trembling. He's showing that what Abraham did was a real secular part of your murder. Right? He's ready, ready to kill Isaac, right? And that the person who's called the father of faith goes beyond the ethical and does something that is based on the power of the absurd. That's you see the first time examples of him using this notion of, of the absurd. Emphasizes that that a lot. And one of the things that goes on today is everyone loves Kierkegaard psychology, but like they like to detach it from any of this talk of faith. Like one thing that's really funny in that is you know, you know for him. Uh, the concept of authority was very important in obedience. I mean, he has a few lines about that. Man, nobody did it. We live in this world of don't, don't tell me what to do world, right? I mean, it's uh, this obsession with autonomy. They, well, everyone likes Kierkegaard to talk about autonomy, and uh, but man, you don't dare mention the importance of obedience. When I was a kid, it was a virtue. Now it's like, are you kidding me? Things have changed, yeah. Yeah, and how, I guess, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that there's a, a virtue to obedience? Like, you think this has gone too far? Or what's the... Yeah, I think the obsession with autonomy has gone much too far. Yeah. And this obsession with uh, personal choice, all that stuff is a little bit whacked out. Yeah, there is a place to do it for, for doing, doing what you've been told to do. I mean, you see this in training with jujitsu, it hasn't been watered down, so the whole spiritual element is, is gone, right? Martial art, we turn everything into a technique, right? It used to be like you just master Zen, whatever, or yoga. Master tells you X, you do X. I do think there's a place for it. Yeah, that was the exact jump I was going to make about this virtue of obedience it comes up in, in a coaching context or a uh, student context. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested, based on my own history in competitive sport and your history with boxing, to dig in a bit into that. And I think it also connects really nice with these ideas of authenticity, with these ideas of self-deception, because all those things come up. And I guess we can dig into that. So maybe if you could provide a bit of a, your background as, as a boxer, you were a football player before that, but I don't know how, how you view that in your athletic journey. Yeah. I was going back and forth between boxing and football, but where I lived on the New Jersey shore, there were no boxing gyms, so I'd have to hitchhike into Philadelphia, which was like at like 15 and things to get some training. And my grandfather had been a boxer, but I came from an Italian family. And uh, my father, who was always connected boxing with crime and the mob and all that stuff, and he was not a big boxing fan, so I kind of was something I kind of took up on my own and became obsessed with. I had dreams of making it to the NFL, which were 
probably unrealistic. And I went to a Division one school, and uh, when that dream collapsed, uh, my whole sense of identity went with it. Uh, I didn't. It was terrible. Got into drugs, drinking, and and um, that kind of stuff. There's where I mean, one of the things that uh, connections there with, with stoicism would be like um, this idea of wh- why do I? I felt like I wasn't a human being if I wasn't making football at the top, you know? Couldn't love myself unless I... So these kinds of identity attachments we get, secure cord discussions and sex on death. Well, it should give me pause to go, why do I need this so badly? Like, I'm working with a co- coach and a kid right now who's been into, I think, he's kickboxing MMA as an amateur at the world world level. And the, the, the kid can't think of anything about it. But fighting, you know, I mean, and that, that has a lot to do with the fact that the only time he got any attention from his father was for fighting, right? But his whole identity is so wrapped, wrapped up in it. So, um, yeah, and that happened with me. So I went to uh, Columbia. I transferred to Columbia. Thanks in part to football. Got hurt there. I went back to the boxing gyms and uh, signed a pro contract with somebody, with a, with a person who had too many fighters and uh, was just a terrible, no training. And so I had to quit. Oh, one of the things I learned from that, and, and that horrible experience, because I was born with all these top contenders in New York at the time, even though I didn't have that much experience, uh, was uh, the importance of being a, had a coach. I mean, as you know, probably know from gyms, you go to the wrong gym, it can be a terrible experience. His idea was, you know, you you, uh, you survive with these guys and these top contenders, and everything else is going to be easy. Well, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. So um, that's how I kind of got into boxing. And training people for 30 years, I guess, almost. Yeah, one of the questions I have here is it's like, it's how, how important is the people's to our identity, how sometimes the fantasy of being able to defend ourselves, how important that it is to many people, you know? Why, like, I mean, it does. It really helps a lot of people. Like, oh, I mean, it makes them feel much more at home in themselves. At this stage, it's kind of puzzling me that why it's so important. It's kind of primitive, you know? Yeah, that was an interesting direction for you to take it because I was expecting the discussions of the positive aspects, but you, you very rightly bring up what sometimes gets dismissed in these discussions of the negative aspects of, you know, y- your ego, your time to your self-conception and how you can kind of have that break if things don't work out for you. Yeah. And I think especially fighting as a sport, if you're not philosophical, it can be tied up a lot into conceptions of like masculinity and, as you said, like defending yourself and being a man. And I never want to get too philosophical about it. I don't know for some reason, but I mean, two things there is uh, that I've argued is that uh, if it's true that we need to be uh, we need, need to be able to deal with anxiety and, and rage, which a lot of the people, at least in boxing, you know, not the white collar stuff, or at least in boxing, the kids I deal with come from environments where there's a lot of anger a lot of time and um, we need workshops and deal with that, you know. And there are not many places in this society today where you can get practice at, it, at being anxious. And anxiety, uh, and as you know, uh, even if you just want to think of it from a practical point of view, it makes you alert. Like when I've had boxers that, uh, there's some exceptions, Ali and Joe Lewis, for example, sleep before a big fight. But for the most part, my, I mean, huge fight, Fraser Ali, uh, Lewis Schmeling, uh, you'd have to wake them up time to fight, you know. But for the most part, the boxers I've dealt with were screwing around or, you know, before about, and they weren't anxious. I said, oh, shit, man, here we go. You know, because they're in denial. So one of, the, one of the things I got from, you know, I've been friends with Mike Tyson and 
from his trainer, Custom Auto, is uh, not getting anxious about being anxious, not panicking about being feeling panicked. That's a big lesson, right? Because, like, for example, I got to New Zealand yesterday about my brother, man, and I was ready to hit the bar or something, man. You know, it takes a while to process the blows of life and not to freak out about feeling freaked out. So that that's a positive aspect of it. But as I'm sure you'd agree, you've got to have the right coach, right environment. I certainly don't think sport or especially martial art is like necessarily beneficial. I think it has to be done for a certain purpose. And I think, as you point out, it has to be done in the right environment. But this is the thing I talk a lot of with stoicism as well, is this like not having that second order anxiety or that second or you're angry with yourself for being angry because now you're practicing stoicism and you're like, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated. Like, getting over that. That is harder in a stoic conception, I think, to explain than it is in an existentialist one, where the existentialist, if I'm understanding you correctly, just gets to say, hey, this is just a part of being a person. In the stoic view, you actually are failing. And what you have to do is you have to forgive yourself for making a mistake. But I guess in the existentialist picture, that's just, you just have to be comfortable confronting the world as it is, where some things are going to make you, are going to be anxiety producing and some things are going to be really sad and hard. You can count on anxiety with, with, with boxing, right? They know they're going to get a workout there when it comes to that being able to deal with it. That's why, that's why I've a million times I've quit the sport because I've had so many people like, you train them every day for five months. And then I think I, think I want to trust. I got, I got to take another, uh, I got another job, coach. I can't. And then three months later, I want to be a fighter again. They want to, so what a lot of them want to do is they want to play fight. They don't really want to fight. They want the red badge of courage, man. And you don't get your red badge of courage until you get in the ring. And uh, I mean, a lot of like, I was talking to some people at one uh, white collar place and go, well, we don't allow any sparring. <laughs> Meantime, people think they're, you know, so part of it is, you know, so. And yeah, this, this, the, the idea of red badge of courage, just like, and I think is, is, is a big part of what a lot of us want. Yeah. Or this kind of, what I hear in that story is this self-deception of like, you think you want it, but if you really wanted it, you wouldn't have trouble coming into the gym and out of the gym again. You just do it. So there's this kind of like this battle because you've coached boxing and you just mentioned that, but I did it quite extensively. What kind of differences do you find in that environment versus teaching in a university, for example? Like, do you find these similar projects or do you approach them quite differently or? Yeah, I think the coaching and the teaching really will work together for me because um, helping students recognize uh, their anxiety sometimes, being able to figure them out individually, so being able to address them individually. One of the things that I experienced in sports was that I was in some of the greatest gyms in the world when I was in New York, and there were these trainers there that were, well, I was hopefully mentored by Angelo Dundee yeah, later in life, but um, they knew had all this, not, not, the trainers I worked with, they didn't teach anything. And if, you, if you're not learning something new, it gets stale. And in boxing, for example, you get all this bad muscle memory. You know, that can't be changed sometimes. I've had to retire fighters who are winners, but couldn't develop a de defense. Reaching out and giving instructions. And when I was in the gyms as a kid, I was like too cool to ask. I mean, I was in, I had Freddie Brown there in the corner, got Ray Arcells around that thing. I mean, guys that were like, you know, the sweetest of sweet scientists. And Mr. Cool wouldn't ask him, hey, hey coach, what? But you just, so one of the things that was cool about my life as a boxing writer for the Wall Street Journal and HBO and everything was I'd always end my interviews with, uh, hey, Manny, give me one tip for my, um, my fighters. All the great fighters have some of that 
is just like right. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, here's no problem, right? You know, and so uh, the importance of teaching people something, yeah, something new. Yes, it's kind of like asking all these great philosophers for like you know one particular insight, but this is a bit more. This is a bit more practical and actionable. It's just kind of cool. Yeah, I think a lot about these questions. I mean, you talked about this kind of coaching style of not actually coaching, which I think is interesting. I've always thought that was interesting. I mean, I, I look at coaching, sport, and jiu-jitsu similar to like working through stoicism or philosophy. And there's this, uh, there's this approach sometimes where you're just going to make people do, you know, you're just going to throw them in the ring and they're going to figure it out or they don't. And you're going to like, as you said, like if they can survive against the best guys in the gym, and that's good. But part of my approach as a coach, is, as you mentioned, is, is this more personalized, you know, understanding the person where they are and adjusting for that. So yeah, I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, one thing for me is like sport has, was, was always a really good way of encountering that kind of self-deception, as you said, and that kind of break between behaviors and action. Like I want to be this, but when you, when you get a sport context or like a fighting context where you're going to like, I competed in MMA, for example, and you're going to get hit in the face and you're going to get, I have seven stitches, well, I have nine stitches, but seven and one just from a knee. And it's like, you really got to confront, is that what you really want? And you really confront the kind of self-deception you have an opportunity for kind of introspection in a way that's really valuable. Sometimes if you're just doing academic or theoretical work, you're not getting that same confrontation with reality. True. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing you have with jujitsu that we don't have in boxing is one there's, there's certain traditions there. We were a traditionalist society and there's traditions, at least there have been in martial arts that are, that are really good, I think, that are lacking in our general overall society. So that's one of the benefits um, I think martial arts has, has over boxing. There's a bit of character development built into it. Like it's understood as part of the project, I guess, in martial arts, as opposed to perhaps a side effect that you can access when you're boxing if you do it intentionally. Yeah. Now, what's, what, one of the things I found actually comparing football to boxing is when I coached football for years, you know, football is so corporate, you don't get to know the person. And I think it's so important to, um, to be there for people on an, on an everyday consistent basis and uh it's not a matter of like some great insight all the time just being there is so important in life and some people come from environments where nobody's been there from all the time and they never get any affirmation either so some of the student boxers i've worked with that have gotten the most from it was the first place they were they really were anybody ever told them they were any they were good now they live come from a household where there's all kinds of craziness going on pissed off, go to school, get in trouble, get yelled at. Nobody ever says a nice word. And if they stick with the boxing, and man, sometimes that sunlight of affirmation just, and a lot of us have gotten our whole lives, but there's millions and millions of people who don't get any of it, right? And it can make you grow so much. You know, so I think that's another beautiful part of it. And, and that's a point which I mean, I yell, I don't have a big yell, man. I'll be screaming at people, but they got to have your trust. Once they trust you, they know you love them, man. I'm friggin' nuts. You were talking about boxing coaching, but it, it seems to me just an incredibly strong parallel to kind of character development or friendship or, you know, some people haven't had a person there to support them. And once that trust is there, then, then you can yell at your friend and be like, what the hell are you doing? You know? One of the things I got from my, my boxing coaching mentor, Gordon Calkins, who's a Marine, was uh, that the loving thing to do a lot of times is to tell people shit they don't want to hear, man. You know? You know, and that's, if you really care about somebody, you'll, you'll, you'll tell them that once. And sometimes you have to time it the way I right, got to your trust, but I remember one kid I trained for months and took him up and uh, 
the Duluth, a five-hour, it was like a five-hour drive for his first fight when there were like three one-minute rounds. He, he makes it to the fight, and then afterwards he goes, well, that was fun, man. I, I went freaking nuts, man. I said, that was fun. You didn't do your best. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't have done this at the end, if I, but I said, it's not you react to like, I'm not coaching all this for like a little, uh, your little uh, theme park adventure, you know. And so I went berserk and I wouldn't stop either, too, because he's sitting in the back of the car going home with his girlfriend and they're talking up like. <laughs> I didn't drive you 10 hours for you to have fun. I didn't. Yeah, yeah it's just like, oh, I'll put this. I'm done now, I'm a boxer, you know. And even though I got through the fight, he should have won it, but he didn't, he didn't give it everything, man. He didn't. He, to bring it full circle, a great connection back to the kind of pursuit of authenticity and doing that through different means. So, Gordon, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. This was great. One thing that I'd like to ask, if somebody wanted to get into existentialism, obviously they can, they, they can look at your book, The Existentialist Survival Guide, but if there's any, is there any other starting point? You started with the Kierkegaard text. If somebody wanted to kind of go down that road, what would you recommend? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of good intros. I mean, I have an anthology through Random House, a modern library that's um, got quite a spectrum of different stuff in there. So that's useful. But there's a lot of good intros to um, existentialism. And just, you can pick them up and read through them. And get, but also people can email me if they have any questions. I have, uh, have sometimes people email me. We have a telephone conversation. So I'm happy to to offer some guidance along, tutoring along that, that line. But if they're going to look at Kierkegaard, I would start with the sickness on of death and not freak out about the first page. The first page is, I don't know, these jokes around or what the hell he's trying to do, but it's like he's, it's almost like he's trying to scare you off, you know. But if you're going to read one book of Kierkegaard's and you have a psychological interest, that's that's the book. And uh, I pre really uh, appreciate all your good questions. I'm sorry to ramble on a little bit this morning, but that's uh, a result of your good questions. Oh, not at all. It was great talking to you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.